Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Unbundling Competition, our Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series focusing on competition law issues for clients based here in Asia. My name is Adelaide Luke, and with me today is Mark Jeffcott from Herbert Smith Freehills London office. Mark's also a partner in our competition regulation and trade team, and he previously worked as an official at both the UK Competition Appeal Tribunal and the European Commission, as well as spending many years practicing here in Hong Kong. So he's perfectly placed to provide some insight on our topic today. So today we'll be discussing the UK's competition law regime following Brexit. While the UK officially left the EU on the 31st of January 2020, under the Brexit transitional agreement that's in place until the end of 2020, the UK actually remained a part of the EU for competition law purposes, and EU competition law has continued to apply to the UK. But once that arrangement falls away on the 1st of January, what will the competition law regime look like? Mark, perhaps as a starting point, can you briefly walk us through the way in which the EU competition law regime currently interacts with that of the UK? Uh, yes, of course, and hello, everyone. Uh, so most of you will already be uh, familiar to a greater or lesser extent uh, with uh, EU <coughs> excuse me, competition law already. Uh, but in brief, there are two main provisions uh, in the relevant treaty. That's the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, quite a mouthful, often referred to as the TFEU. Uh, and this provides the legal basis for enforcement of competition law uh, by the European Commission. Um, so these are uh, Articles 101 and 102. Uh, Article 101, uh, that covers uh, basically anti-competitive agreements. Um, so most commonly things like cartels, you'll see uh, the huge fines that follow from uh, cartel uh, infringements um, in the news. But it also cover, covers you know, less egregious uh, agreements such as distribution arrangements, which are generally fine, but they can sometimes have anti-competitive foreclosure effects. Uh, Article 102, again, has been very topical in the news a lot. There have been some big fines uh, for some of the major tech companies, for instance, uh, for so-called abuse of dominant positions. Uh, and so this applies to basically unilateral uh, conduct, and, and the rules are aimed at preventing them from abusing the dominance by exploiting suppliers and customers or excluding competitors from a given market. So under the EU system, uh, EU member states uh, transfer part of their authority over competition law issues to the uh, European Commission uh, in relation to matters that so-called affect trade between member states. However, uh, member states also have national competition laws and their own competition authorities, including, of course, the UK, uh, and they apply national uh, and EU law in parallel. Uh, in terms of antitrust investigations, uh, once the Commission opens a formal investigation into a given conduct, uh, member states are then prevented or ousted uh, from doing the same. Um, so this allows for a single investigation and decision to be taken at the EU level, a uh, good recent example uh, is the automotive part, part cartels, uh, and they were dealt with solely by the Commission uh, for the whole of the EU. Uh, the EU system, of course, also covers merger control, 
and it has a, a specific legislation to cover that, the, the so-called uh, EUMR or EU merger regulation. Uh, and this involves the Commission uh, reviewing proposed transactions to ensure they won't harm competition in Europe. Uh, very briefly, because it's a very complicated area, uh, if a transaction meets certain specified turnover thresholds, then it has a so-called community dimension and is caught by the EUMR. Uh, the Commission then acts as a one-stop shop. Uh, one filing is made to the Commission and one investigation and decision will be issued for the entirety of the EU uh, and the uh, EEA. Uh, if the deal doesn't qualify for assessment under the EUMR, uh, you then need to check uh, the national laws uh, of the member states. Thanks, Mark. And so how's this going to change uh, after the 31st of December 2020? Yeah, well, there will be quite a lot of change, to be honest. Um, so when the transitional arrangements fall away, uh, the UK will be out of the system I've just described uh, from the 1st of January, so a matter of days, really. Um, the UK will no longer be competent to apply EU law purely national UK competition law. Um, at least to begin with, competition laws will remain pretty similar to EU law principles um, and they'll continue to apply pretty much as before. Uh, that said, the UK can divert, diverge if it wants to and over time it uh, probably will and officials have suggested uh, that that may well happen. Um, it means there will be parallel investigations. So There'll be one in the EU and one in the UK. As I mentioned earlier, that doesn't currently happen. Uh, currently, the EU would oust the UK's jurisdiction. Um, uh, some important things to note on that. So, for instance, for cartel conduct, uh, it's important to think about leniency. Um, the leniency regimes of the uh, European Commission and the CMA uh, will remain separate. Uh, the Commission will only have jurisdiction over cases where it's opened a formal investigation already. Uh, leniency applications to the Commission, uh, whether they're made before or after the end of the transition period, uh, will not provide protection from fines with respect to any uh, parallel investigation by the UK authority, the uh, Competition and Markets Authority, the, the CMA. That's an interesting point regarding leniency, Mark, and it's one that can often affect, often cause issues for clients, even though the leniency regimes of the UK and the EU have always been separate. I can see that the short-form leniency regime that was previously available for parties who, in parallel, submitted a full application to the Commission, that will fall away as regards the UK. And what about mergers? How will they be affected? Yeah, so mergers, um, the key point here really is that um, as a result of the UK no longer being a, uh, an EU member state um, after the 1st of January 2021, so again, in literally a couple of weeks, um, the UK uh, turnover will no longer be counted towards uh, the EU total when calculating the so-called community dimension. Now, we know that for a large number of Asian companies, the UK often makes up a you know, significant proportion of their overall uh, uh, EU revenue. Uh, so this may mean that for some companies, you know, once the UK figures are excluded from their EU total, uh, the EU thresholds will no longer apply. Um, so companies that you know, have until now always filed in the EU 
uh, may instead, you know, find themselves having to make multiple um, uh, applications at the, at the member state level and multiple filings uh, within the EU uh, because the one-stop shop no longer applies. Uh, and and you know, it's worth bearing in mind this could have a significant impact on deal timing and planning. Uh, it may also mean that uh, different national uh, condition precedents, CPs required, uh, rather than currently having a much more convenient EU-wide CP. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, all this really means that many Asian companies that have mainly dealt with the uh, solely with the European Commission up until now uh, may find themselves dealing with uh, the CMA uh, for the first time. Yeah, and given the UK competition law is going to play a more prominent role for a lot of businesses going forward, uh, can you give us a brief overview of that regime? Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, uh, not dissimilar to the EU, there are two pieces of legislation that underpin the uh, UK's uh, competition regime. Uh, these are the Competition Act uh, 1998 and the key provisions of that uh, mirror uh, Articles 101 and 102 of the EU treaty I mentioned earlier. Uh, but also there's the Enterprise Act 2002, uh, and uh, crucially and importantly, that introduced uh, a criminal cartel offence uh, for individuals engaged, engaged in cartel activity, uh, and it also deals with um, merge control. Uh, so the CMA, which I've already mentioned, that's the UK's main competition authority. Uh, it's an independent body. Uh, if you like, it can be sort of as the brains and experience centre of the, the UK competition system. Um, however, the CMA does share its enforcement powers uh, with other regulators, um, most notably sector-specific regulators, uh, and these are regulators that cover distinct regulated industries such as energy, telecoms, water, uh, financial services. Um, these sector-specific regulators uh, basically seen as having a better understanding of how their particular markets work, uh, more experience in dealing with sector-specific issues, and, and just generally a closer connection with the regulated players in the market. Um, despite this, um, the CMA is the only body that handles merger control. So the CMA will always make the ultimate decision uh, in relation to mergers. Um, it does, however, of course, routinely consult and very sensibly consult the sexual regulators in areas uh, where they like to have um, uh, very detailed industry-specific knowledge. So if I had to sum up this CMA in a single sentence, I'd say CMA, it's a key player on the international scene and it takes a very proactive approach and a wide view uh, of its jurisdiction. And what about the CMA's investigatory powers, Mark? Uh, yeah, so the CMA has uh, a pretty good arsenal of investigator and enforcement powers at its disposal. Um, it uh, can issue fines, uh, and indeed it has imposed fines uh, on Asian companies on previous um, uh, uh, occasions. Unlike the Commission, uh, which has no jurisdiction whatsoever uh, to impose criminal sanctions for breaches of competition law, uh, the CMA can make assessments for criminal liability. Um, individuals can be charged and prosecuted as a criminal trial. That said, to date, these powers have been used fairly sparingly. Uh, there's only been seven criminal cartel cases since 2003, and that's when the offence was introduced, uh, with only three leading to guilty verdicts. 
Um, the CMA can also apply to the court to have directors disqualified uh, for a long time, up to 15 years, uh, for engaging in unlawful conduct. Uh, this powers to use much more liberally than the, 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 than the criminal uh, uh, provisions, uh, and that's particularly in the last few years. So just for example, between December 2016 and December 2019, uh, the CMA disqualified 12 directors, and nine of those were actually disqualified in 2019 alone. Um, so the CMA has very wide-ranging uh, powers. Uh, it also has reasonably unique powers, uh, so-called market investigation powers, and this enables it to keep markets under review by monitoring developments, requiring production of documents, compelling witnesses to provide evidence and you know, other information. Thank you, Mark. And turning to the UK's merger control regime, can you walk us through the key differences between that of the UK and the merger control regime within the EU? Yeah, uh, so there are actually um, some, some really very key distinctions uh, between the two regimes. Um, so first, for instance, there's actually a filing fee under the UK system uh, that doesn't apply to the EU regime. Uh, you know, this is quite significant. Um, otherwise, uh, the jurisdictional tests also differ between the two authorities. Uh, so, for example, the concept of control under the EU regime is not the same. Uh, the CMA will apply a so-called material influence test, and that's generally viewed as a lower threshold. Uh, so, you know, as a result, more transactions can be captured. Uh, the review timetable is longer under the UK system, uh, but that said, it does allow for a bit more flexibility. Um, so, for instance, the timetable allows uh, more time for public consultation in complex cases, uh, and that's quite an important element uh, of the CMA's process. So whereas the Commission controls the uh, consultation process entirely itself and a good bit more tightly, uh, by for instance, it's the Commission that chooses which parties it will consult about mergers, uh, the, the CMA does allow all stakeholders uh, to provide input. Um, another example, um, the, the, the UK merger control regime is fairly unique in that filing is, is, is voluntary, uh, well, I'd say technically voluntary. Um, unlike the EU, so it's not mandatory to make a filing where the relevant thresholds are met uh, or to wait for clearance before closing. Uh, this means that the CMA can avoid reviewing transactions that don't give rise to competition concerns. So, for example, a merger where there's no overlap between the acquirer and the target. However, this does not mean that parties can simply ignore the potential need uh, to make filings uh, not by not by a long chalk. Um, the CMA has jurisdiction to investigate mergers uh, meeting uh, its jurisdictional thresholds even after the transaction has completed. And so this presents a real risk to companies. Um, so you know why would you um, why would you file in the voluntary regime? Well, there are many things that the CMA can do. Um, it can impose, for instance, so-called IEOs, initial enforcement orders. And um, uh, these are uh, pretty drastic. Uh, they effectively require the purchaser to hold separate the business it's acquired pending completion of the CMA's review. Um, also, in a, in a small number of cases, the CMA has actually imposed unwinding orders uh, requiring the parties to reverse integration steps, which have already perfectly legally uh, taken place. 
Um, if the transaction is completed and the CMA subsequently concludes there's a, a so-called FLC, a substantial lessening of competition, and the only appropriate remedy is divestment of the acquired business, uh, then the CMA can order parties to unwind uh, the completed transaction, and that has been done uh, on several occasions recently. Um, what else? Uh, the CMA can launch an own initiative investigation into a merger, even where the parties have chosen not to notify. Um, the CMA can use this power to refer a merger to phase two of its investigation process any time up to four months uh, from the date of completion, or indeed four months from the date when material facts became public uh, or were given to the CMA. Um, it's also worth mentioning that because the system is voluntary, the CMA will make much more effort than other competition authorities to monitor and identify transactions uh, that may have an impact in the UK. Uh, the CMA to do this has a dedicated mergers intelligence unit, the MIU, uh, and this reviews on a daily basis uh, financial press that looks at public information about companies. So the MIU sends out around 600 information requests a year uh, to companies to determine uh, whether it uh, should review uh, their transactions. So, you know, that's 600 a year. You know, that's two a day, uh, give or take. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's a lot. Mm, it's a very active monitoring function. Um, that's a really clear explanation. Thanks, Mark. Finally, is there anything else that our listeners should be aware of in terms of the rules uh, that could impact their investments in the UK? Uh, yes, indeed. It doesn't stop there, I'm afraid. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's worth pointing out the UK um, currently has a relatively unique system for reviewing non-competition aspects of transactions, uh, such as media plurality and national security. Um, the system is not based on mandatory or voluntary filings, as in most jurisdictions, uh, but rather discretion on the part of the relevant Secretary of State, so that's the relevant Cabinet Minister, uh, to intervene if they consider a transaction uh, may give rise to public interest concerns. Mm, and to add to that, I guess very significant changes were announced uh, in November in relation to the ground that's probably most relevant to Asian companies, um, and that being national security. Um, given those changes are so substantial, we've actually recorded a separate podcast on the topic um, with Veronica Roberts, who's another one of our London partners. You should be able to find that on the podcast page. Mark, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you again for being here and for sharing your insights on the UK's competition law landscape post-Brexit. Thanks also to everyone for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this instalment of Unbundling Competition. If you have any comments or questions on anything we've discussed today, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our contact details can be found on the page where you access this recording. Many thanks.